Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is George Gaskell, and I'm a pro-director here at the school. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Yaron Brock to the LSE today. As you may be aware, Yaron Brock is the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute. He's a columnist at Forbes, and he has articles. His articles have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Investors Business Daily, and many other publications. He's an enthusiastic public speaker, and he is often a guest on national radio and television. He's co-author of Neoconservatism, an obituary for an idea, contributing author to Winning the Unwinnable War, and uh, he's also co-author with Don Watkins of the national bestseller Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. He was a former professor of finance and uh, speaks on a variety of topics, including the causes of the financial crisis, morality and capitalism, the end of the state, U.S. foreign policy. And this evening, his uh, talk will focus on the very topical issue of morality in capitalism. Now, for those of you who are Twitterers, uh, the hashtag for today's event is probably on the board, but if it isn't, it's hash uh, caps LSE lowercase capitalism. This event is being uh, recorded and we hope that a podcast will be available uh, in a few weeks. Uh, after the lecture, uh, the floor will be open to questions and I will uh, identify uh, potential questioners, you wait until one of the stewards brings a microphone over. And at the end of the evening, Dr. Brook is available to sign copies of the paperback version of his book, Free Market Revolution. So now I'd like you to join me in welcoming Yaron Brook to the LSE to deliver his lecture on Capitalism Without Guilt, The Moral Case for Freedom. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gaskell and the LSE for inviting me tonight. So there's a mystery among those of us who believe in capitalism. Um, and this is, this is the mystery. All the historical evidence suggests that capitalism works. And we'll talk a little bit about this historical evidence in a minute. That capitalism brings improves the well-being of the citizens, improves the wealth, life expectancy. That wherever it's tried, whenever it's been tried, capitalism produces the goods. And yet, the mystery is, capitalism is being abandoned. We are moving away from capitalism. We're rejecting capitalism throughout the West. We're turning our backs to the system that has allowed us the standard of living and the quality of life that we enjoy today. And the question is, the mystery, if you will, is why? Why are we turning our backs to such a successful system? Now let me, let me define for a minute what capitalism is, at least as I define it. Capitalism is a system of private property. It's a system in which all 
property is private, in which the role of government is limited in the economic sphere to the protection of property rights. And that's it. It is the system in which there is a separation, to use the language of the American Constitution, between economics and state. And by the way, I don't have a talk about ending the state. I believe in the state, but in a very limited state that's dedicated to just the protection of individual rights. So, this kind of capitalism, this complete separation indeed has never existed. We don't have an example in history of this complete separation of a truly, completely free market. But to the extent that private property has been tried, to the extent that government has been limited in its role to the protection of property rights, to that extent, we have all benefited enormously from the marketplace. We have benefited in standard of living, we have benefited in quality of life. I mean, this is true historically, if you look at the past, if you look at economic growth and economic success during periods of time when markets were relatively free, this is true across geographies, across the world. If you compare countries that have very centralized economies that are controlled by government versus economies that are relatively free, the ones that are free grow faster. The ones that are free see a much faster rise in standard of living, a much higher quality of life. More innovation, more technology, more success. Longer lives. Better quality of life. Better standard of living. Look at that 19th century. An era, at least in the United States, and to some extent the UK, of relative economic freedom. A very little central control, a very little imposition of the government over the economy. Still some, not perfect, but some but limited. And we went during a period of a hundred years from a standard of living that none of you would recognize. A quality of life that none of you would want to live under. Where most of the population, 250 years ago, most of the population on the planet, most of the population of the industrialized West was dirt poor. Was subsistence farmers. Life expectancy was very short, 35, 40, depending on where you were. The quality of life, you know, when it, when it uh, turned dark, life was over. There was no lighting. The rich could enjoy, you know, maybe some rare oils that they could burn at night and, and see some light. But there was no lighting. There was no running water. There was no sewage system. There was no electricity. None of the things that we take for granted existed. And yet, within a period of 100 years, a hundred years. By the beginning of, you know, by the beginning of the 20th century, think of the standard of living that by then we in the West could enjoy. That period is one of the greatest periods of human advancement ever. Well, actually is the greatest period of human advancement ever. If you look at wealth per capita through the ages, there's this wonderful graph that is, is uh, represented in many books. I, I, I recommend the, the first chapter of The Rational Optimist, a, a, a book by uh, Matt Ridley for this. But there's this uh, phenomenal graph of the last 10,000 years wealth per capita in the entire world. And it's basically flat. And then suddenly it goes like that. It just skyrockets. 
And what happens? When does that happen? Well, sometime in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Sometime in which we start recognizing the value of the individual. When we start recognizing property rights. When we start recognizing freedom. 1776 strikes me as a good starting date, although it's somewhat random, right? For when this happens, I like to tell my American audiences that you guys considered the American colony a third-rate colony. That's why you didn't really fight in that war, right? You kind of let us win. Um, and in 1776, the United States was nothing special. <coughs> Yet, within 130 years, 140 years, by the break of World War I, the United States was the strongest economy, and it turns out the strongest military force on the planet. That happened because of free markets. That happened because of capitalism. And yet, from about 1913, it's a, it's a nice date, for, for two reasons in the United States. First, it's 100 years ago, exactly. But for two reasons, it's a symbolic date, because one, uh, it's the date in which the United States established a central bank. The Federal Reserve was established, uh, started operating in early uh, 1914, was established in 1913. And uh, for the first time, other than during war, an income tax was levied on Americans. The Constitution of America was amended to allow for an income tax in 1913. And it was the beginning of the income tax. So a good starting point for the rise of statism in the United States. Since 1913, the United States has moved away from free markets. And I think what we've seen is a slow erosion of property rights, a slow increase in the size of government, in the size of redistribution of wealth through welfare and entitlement programs, and a large rise of the entitlement state, and at the same time, a slow decline in economic growth, a slow decline in economic success to the point where today real incomes in the United States are barely rising from a period where they were skyrocketing. So why? Why is this that over the hundred years we've turned our backs to a system that so benefited our lives? And it's not just historically, it's geographically. You can look around the world. There's an there's a economic freedom index that is published every year. By, there are two different economic freedom indexes. They vary slightly, but they generally are the same. And there's a high correlation between economic freedom and economic success. A very high correlation. It's actually quite stunning, given the nature of the business, how close the correlation is. The more economic freedom, the better economic success you get. And yet, for example, the United States, which is my frame of reference, I guess, over the last 15 years has dropped from the number three freest economy, which is not very free in my book, but still, number three, not bad, to number 18, systematically moving away from economic freedom in spite, in spite of all this bad. <coughs> Take uh, a country like, a uh, city really, like Hong Kong, I don't know how many of you have been to Hong Kong. How many people have been to Hong Kong? I like to tell audiences, you've got to go there once in your life. It's a, a, an amazing place. This is a, uh, a city in the middle of nowhere that 75 years ago was a fishing village. Uh, the British basically instituted on this island the rule of law and the protection of property rights. 
Nothing much else. A very, very minimal safety net. And yet, people came there from everywhere. From all over Asia. Today, there's seven and a half million people on this island, and they're building skyscrapers that put New, puts New York to shame. They've been a huge economic success. GDP per capita, measure of wealth, is equal today to the U.S. I mean, that's amazing in 75 years. It's no accident that they rank, based on almost every survey, either number one or number two on the Economic Freedom Index. So we can look, we can see what works. And yet we ignore it. And it's not a lack of economic understanding. Those of us on the side of economic freedom have had great economists on our side who've won Nobel Prizes and they've been teaching and they've been advocating for free markets all over the world for the last hundred years. You know, our economic understanding of why markets work is very solid. And we ignore it. We ignore it. Now, I like to use, you know, lately I've been talking about the minimum wage. I think the minimum wage is a wonderful example of this, right? The minimum wage is a price control. It's a price control on labor. What do price controls do? They create economic distortions. In this case, what is a, what is a $10, they just raised in California, the minimum wage to $10. California is the state I live in. What does a $10 minimum wage do? Well, it prices out of the market anybody who is only worth to an employer five, six, seven, eight, or nine dollars. So it increases unemployment. Now, this is economics 101, supply and demand analysis, straightforward. It's not hard stuff. Minimum wage equals greater unemployment. Greater unemployment with whom? With a young, unskilled, the people who supposedly this is meant to help. Yet they're the ones who lose their job or don't get a job to begin with. And of course, as a consequence of not getting a job to begin with, they don't learn skills. They don't get an opportunity to advance. They don't get an opportunity to one day make $100 an hour or $1,000 an hour. Because nobody is allowed, not that nobody wants to, nobody's allowed to give them $5 an hour. Again, Economics 101, does it stop anybody from instituting minimum wages and raising them constantly? No. Because at the end of the day, our objection to capitalism, our objection to free markets, has nothing to do with economics. It has nothing to do with standard of living. When people go to the ballot box, they do not vote their pocketbook. That, the myth is, people vote their economic interest, but people don't. People don't care about their economic interests. People vote for what they think is just, what they think is right, what they think is good. You know, we had lots of examples this last election in the United States. Obama, his whole campaign was about fairness. It wasn't about economic success. He never talked about that because he knew that was a losing strategy for him. He talked about fairness and justice and what's good and what's right. In California, we raised uh, income taxes. California is a great example of a lot of what I'm talking about. We just raised income taxes on the wealthiest Californians from 10% to 13%. Now, this is on top of a 39% federal income tax. So we raised it by 30% on the richest. How did the richest, how did the rich in California vote for this? Now, your instinct would say they voted against it because this is an increase in their taxes. Well, it turns out, no, they all voted for it. 
because they think it's right, because they think it's fair, because they think it's just. In voting for Obama, the wealthy understood that their taxes would go up. Obama promised that. You're going to check the sound. Uh, and yet, of the 10 richest counties in the United States, eight voted for Obama. They voted for a tax increase on themselves. And you could say this is cronyism. They're going to get benefits from the government. But not all eight. Not everybody. Maybe some industries. So something else is going on here. And I would argue that the fundamental objective to capitalism is not economic. It's moral. It's ethical. And why is this? What is capitalism about? When I, when I say capitalism or free markets, what, what are people engage in markets for? What are they going into the marketplace to do? What is the essence of the marketplace, of capitalism? It's to do what? Why do people produce stuff? Why do they make stuff? Why do they, why do they produce this, the iPhone? Why does Steve Jobs make this? He does it to do what? To make money, right? Does it to make money. That's not, and, and, and I see some of you a little embarrassed by that fact, right? It's a little embarrassing. All the stuff that we buy, somebody made with the intention of making money on them. All the values we have, or most of them, were produced by money-making businesses. That's not just money, right? Because Steve Jobs had a passion. He loves this stuff. And he wanted to make something beautiful in, uh, in his own image, if you will, right? Steve Jobs built the iPhone for money and for Steve Jobs, because he loves it. In other words, Steve Jobs did this. He provides us all with the iPhone because he wants to, because it fulfills his interest, because it's about making his life better, whether it's by ex exercising his passion or whether it's by making money. And by the way, he made a lot of money. The first iPhones went for a profit margin of 60%. If Steve Jobs cared about me, he would have sold the first iPhones for half price. I would have been a lot happier. But Steve Jobs' motivation is not my happiness. It's not social utility. It's not maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Steve Jobs' purpose is to make Steve Jobs happy. Now, when I went to the mall in 2008 to buy my first iPhone, the economy in the United States was spiraling out of control. It was declining dramatically. And I wanted to stimulate the economy. <laughs> because I know that's why you guys go to the mall. You go buy stuff, right? You go shopping because you care about your fellow man and you want to make sure that they're employed and they have jobs. And, you know, you buy stuff not because you want it or need it, but because you care about others. Right? Well, of course not. You all go to the mall because you're trying to make your life better. Whether it's better by buying something that increases your productivity, hopefully, like an iPhone. Or whether it's by looking better because that makes you feel better, by buying nice shoes and nice clothes. You're out there in the marketplace trying to be, trying to do stuff that fulfills your self-interest. Your wants, your wishes. Indeed, the marketplace is a place in which people come and meet and engage in the fulfillment of their self-interest. Buyers and sellers are there to make their own lives better. 
buyers and sellers are there for their own selfish reasons. Now this is not a new identification. Adam Smith teaches us this in The Wealth of Nations. In 1776 he writes the book, right? Another reason 1776 is a good date. He tells us the baker doesn't bake the bread to make us happy. The baker bakes his bread to feed his family. To make enough money to take care of himself and the people he cares about. The delivery guy doesn't deliver the bread to the grocery store because he cares about you or the grocery store or the baker. He's trying to feed himself. He's pursuing his own self-interest. But this is the problem. What have we been taught since we were this big, right, about self-interest? What have we been told, and even Adam Smith believes, that what about self-interest? Is, is it a good thing? Is it a virtue? Is it something positive? I don't know where you grew up, but I grew up in a good Jewish household, right? And my mother taught me that to be good, to be virtuous, to be noble, is to be selfless is to sacrifice. Think about this first, she told me. Think of yourself last. Now, she didn't mean any of that. She really didn't. She doesn't actually want me to live that way. But that is how she set up. That's how I'm all philosophers. That's how our religious teachings. That's how they've set up morality. Morality is about being selfless. It's about taking care of others. And the more you sacrifice, the more noble and virtuous you are. The more you give, the better you are. And we look out at capitalism and what do we see? People pursuing their self-interest. That can't be right. That can't be good. That can't be noble. It isn't. Not according to the moral code that we have all grown up with. Our moral code says no. Selflessness is good. Selflessness is virtue. Selflessness is noble. And capitalism is not about selflessness. I don't care what you think. And, and, and we know this, right? Because as soon as a financial crisis happens, as soon as a financial crisis happens, any financial crisis, who's to blame? We know instinctually, it, deep down inside, we know. We don't have to ask any economist. We don't have to ask anybody who's to blame for the financial crisis. Bankers, capitalists, businessmen, always, for 2,000 years, we've known it. Every financial crisis in the last 2,000 years has been blamed on bankers. Whether they were at fault or not, doesn't matter. And indeed, most of the time, they're not. Most of the time, economists later on understand that they weren't at fault. But it's too late. The damage has been done. Best example is, by the way, is the 1930s, the Great Depression in the United States. No serious economist today thinks that the, that the Great Depression was caused by speculation on Wall Street. That's what you're taught, maybe, but that's not what they think. Studies will be done. This is, there was the Federal Reserve. It was central banking and then the response to the Great Depression by, by Hoover and then FDR, which caused the Great Depression. Not banking, not Wall Street, not business, but yet they were the ones penalized. They were the ones regulated. They were the ones controlled. Why? Because instinctually we know they're the greedy ones. Greed means selfish. Selfish means self-interest. Self-interest means bad. It just means bad. In our moral language, it means bad. We set it up. The nobility equals selflessness. Bad, evil means self-interest. Right? And, and this works. I mean, think about, think about a guy named, uh, like Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates uh, builds Microsoft. 
And by building Microsoft, how much money does he make for himself? Like tens of billions of dollars, right? He's the richest man in the world, 50, 60 billion dollars he's made. How does he make 50, 60 billion dollars? How does he make it? By what? By doing what? By selling us stuff, right? We buy it. And why do we buy it? We buy it because it's going to make our life better. So we pay $100 for Microsoft software. How much is the software worth to us? Basic economics. I pay 100 bucks for something. How much is it worth to me? More than 100. Otherwise, I wouldn't give up 100, right? So I'm better off because I've got something worth more than what I gave up. How about Microsoft? Are they better off? Sure, because the software to them is worth less than 100. They profited. I benefited. Win-win. Nature of trade. Once in a while, you get a lemon, right? And you're worse off. But the intention of the trade, the purpose you go into the trade, is with the idea of win-win, of benefiting both sides are better off after a trade. Almost all transactions are that way. So Bill Gates made $50 billion by making all of us richer, by making all of our lives better. Every one of our lives is better because of Bill Gates. Not only us. I would say the entire planet is better off because of Bill Gates. He has touched, literally touched, and enhanced the life of billions, billions, not millions, billions of people. He's created value in the trillions of dollars. He made 50 billion. How much moral, ethical credit does he get for it? Zero. Does anybody think of Bill Gates as a good guy from a moral perspective because he made $50 billion? No. If anything, we give him negative moral credit for it. Now, when does Bill Gates become a hero, a good guy, a moral human being, a virtuous human being? When he gives it away. When he leaves Microsoft, and now he's running a charity. Now, he will impact far fewer people in the charity. He will have a far less impact on their lives. He will impact less people around the world because of his charity. He will make the world a better place less than he did in Microsoft. But he will get much more moral credit because he doesn't look like he's benefiting from it. But we're still not quite ready to make him, you know, to call this a noble act, uh, an incredibly virtuous act, right? Because he seems like he's enjoying it. Like they're giving the money away. <laughs> Seriously. He's enjoying it, so he's getting some spiritual satisfaction out of it. To really be noble, to really show he's sacrificing, what would Bill Gates have to do? He'd have to give it all away, move into a tent, show us some real suffering. None of us would want to be Bill Gates in that situation, but we think he's a moral hero. Now again, incompatible with capitalism. Capitalism is about building stuff, creating value, trading value, and benefiting billions of people. But it's about the building, the creating, the making, not about the giving. Giving is a sideshow. Again, I, you know, uh, I, I attended these award dinners where, where businessmen get lifetime achievement awards. They have long bios that they read when they, when they read the bios of these guys who are getting these special awards. And uh, during, the, during the reading of the bio, they spend about a minute, a minute and a half on their professional business success, and about nine to ten minutes on their philanthropy and community service. Now that to me is absurd. These guys have contributed to their community, to the people around them, to their employees, to their suppliers, to the people 
all around them far more in their business lives than they ever will in their philanthropy. They've spent more time on their business. They've built up. They're taking care of themselves. They're taking care of their family. They've built a life around their business life. Why is that less important than their philanthropy and community service? Is that, is philanthropy and community service what changes the world? Is that really what improves the well-being of mankind? I mean, I'm not against philanthropy, not against community service, but give me a break. Is that really important? Did America become this mighty economic power because of philanthropy over those hundred years? No, because of business, because of profit-seeking, because of entrepreneurship and building and creating stuff. Philanthropy is nice to take care of those who fall through the cracks. But in a free market, not that many people fall through the cracks. So we have a morality that is incompatible and consistent with capitalism, and we see this impacting the state in dramatic fashion. Because when people live, you know, most people don't live a selfless life. I mean, I don't think anybody or very few people live such a life. Most of us go to the mall, shop, pursue uh, self-interested pursuits, at least in certain realms of our life. But we know, particularly if we've made a lot of money and spent a lot of time in business and really devoted ourselves to the profit-making endeavor, we know that's not moral. We know that morality would have us give it all up. But we can't do that. It's too comfortable. It's too good. Now, what, what emotion do you get when you live one life but you should, you believe, you should be living another. What you get is guilt. And guilt is an incredibly powerful emotion. Just ask any Jewish mother or Catholic mother. They know how to use this, right? <laughs> it's an amazing mechanism for controlling people. Right? And this is what happens in California when these rich guys vote to increase their taxes. What the government is telling them is this. Look, there's some people over here who are not doing too well. It's your moral responsibility to take care of them. You're not. You're not giving enough. And since you're not doing it voluntarily, we, the state, will come in and help you be a better person by taking some of your money by force and giving it to other people. And they all vote yes. That'll reduce my, my guilt. I'll feel better about myself. Why are you feeling guilty? Because I have this moral standard. So you can see how this creates an entitlement mentality, an entitlement state. There's always somebody who needs something. Always somebody who needs something. And always somebody who's got more. And the entitlement state starts out by helping only the very, very poor. But then what about the next level of poverty? What about the next group? And it grows and it grows and it grows until half the people are funding the other half of people. And it feeds the regulatory state. How does it work with the regulatory state? Well, think about it. How, how have we set this up, right? Being selfless is noble. Being self-interested is bad. Well, what do bad people do? When we, you pointed to the kid in the playground and said, you're selfish, what did you mean? That that kid was taking care of himself, pursuing his own values and his own life? Is that what you meant? No, you meant that kid is a lying, cheating SOB that he would do anything to get his way, step on anybody, use anybody. And that's what we associate with self-interest. Self-interest is about exploiting other people. 
It's not taking care of oneself. It's taking care of oneself by supposedly exploiting others. Bad. So when we look at businessmen who are clearly self-interested, what do we see? Because we've been conditioned this way. We see lying, stealing thieves. We see crooks. It's just a question of time before they're caught. But all businessmen are crooks because they're self-interested. And self-interest always leads to thievery. You know, this really came home to me in 2002. In 2002 in America, a few crooks were caught. CEOs of big companies, they were clearly fraud, you know, committed fraud. And they were, about, they were caught and they were being brought to justice. And yet there was this call in the American public for every CEO in America to be fired. I know this because Bill O'Reilly, you know Bill O'Reilly is? Yeah. Crazy uh, Fox commentator uh, who is a complete populist who puts his finger out in the wind. He was the biggest voice for firing every CEO in America. Why? Because they're all crooks. Because they're all self-interested. I was on a show trying to defend CEOs, right? And he's yelling about how evil they are. And you can see this by the immediate regulation that was passed in Congress in 2002. Uh, the U.S. passed a bill, 98 to 0 in the Senate, so no conservative, no Republican voted against this, called Sarbanes-Oxley, which is basically an accounting regulation that puts a little government official on your shoulder monitoring every number that you enter. Everything, because they're going to catch you. Because you're a crook, now they just need to catch you. I mean, think about it. Um, in the United States, you walk into any elevator, and there's a little diploma on the wall that says that a government bureaucrat inspected it and it won't fall and kill you. I always sigh a sigh of relief. Right? Because I know that if this was left to private enterprise, well, of course, the elevator contractor would build an elevator that was defective and would kill me. Because that's how you make money, right? In a pure free market, you make money by killing your customers. There are no market mechanisms that would protect me from the evil elevator building. I mean, we think about it. Without government regulation, oh my God, they cut corners. They cheat. They lie. Bad things would happen to us all. But we trust the regulator. Why do we trust the regulator? Because we know what motivates the businessman. The businessman is motivated by self-interest. Ooh, bad. But what is the regulator motivated by? What is the government civil servant motivated by? Well, the public interest. It's not about him. It's about social utility. It's about you. It's about others. He's not self-interested. Or at least that's what we're told. Right? It's about protecting us. And we believe that. We like that because that coincides with this morality of selflessness. I mean, why do we trust? When JP, before there was a Federal Reserve in the United States, there was a banker named JP Morgan who was a very powerful banker. And people hated him. And indeed, I would argue that the Federal Reserve was established in order to curtail his power. So what do we do? We curtail J.P. Morgan's power, a profit-seeking, self-interested you know, banker, and we gave the power to Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke now controls a bank a thousand times more powerful than anything J.P. Morgan could do. I mean, the Federal Reserve dictates the economy of the entire world. But we saw sleep at night quite comfortably. We don't worry about Ben because we know. He's a public servant. He's got our well-being in mind. He's not in it for money. He's not trying to make a profit. So we feel good. And of course, the consequences are the financial crisis. So given the morality we have today, 
Given the perception of self-interest as ignoble, as bad, as wrong, capitalism is dead. Capitalism doesn't have a chance. Business doesn't have a chance. And we will continue to move away from capitalism as long as this morality is the dominant morality. And this is the challenge. Because I don't get this morality. I don't get the morality that says I should be selfless. The key question to ask when somebody tells you that nobility means selflessness is to ask why. Why is my life worth less than somebody else's? Why is my purpose in life to live for others? Why should I not think about myself? Myself is me. I'm here once. I've got one shot at this. One life. Why not try to live the best life that I can for me? Isn't the question in morality, shouldn't the question in ethics be, what are the set of values and virtues that make an individual human being the best life that it can be for him? Isn't that the project that our philosophers should be engaged in? What are the virtues? What are the values? What are the things we should pursue? What are the character traits we should have to be happy, to be successful, to flourish? Aristotle. Aristotle talks about the purpose of morality is to achieve eudaimonia, flourishing, happiness, success as a human being. That's a self-interested morality. That's a morality that says that goodness lies in pursuing your own value, your own self-interest, in being self-interested, in pursuing the values that are going to make your life good. And in pursuit of those values, what is the most important value one can pursue? What is the thing that makes us human? What is the thing that allows for all the stuff that we have in the world, material and spiritual? What is it that allows us as a species not just to survive but to thrive? Because, you know, let's be frank, as a species, we're pretty pathetic. If you look at your neighbor, you'll see the evidence of that. <laughs> we're weak. We're slow. We have no claws. We have no fangs. I mean, you try running down a buffalo and biting into it. I mean, or standing up to saber-toothed tiger. You're not going to be successful. So what makes it possible for such a pathetic species to rise to such heights as we have? Well, it's not thumbs. What is it? How do we get the buffalo? Well, we developed weapons and tools and strategies and plans and traps. And how do we do that? By using our mind, by using our reason, by observing reality, understanding reality, integrating reality, coming up with knowledge. We are, again as Aristotle pointed out, we are the rational animal. Our strength is our ability to use reason. So what is it? If we want to be self-interested, if there's a morality of self-interest, what should we be pursuing? Well, we should be pursuing reason. Our ability to think, to strategize, to figure out, to observe. So, for Ayn Rand, the number one value in pursuit of one's self-interest is rationality, is reason. So to be rational, so for Rand, the morality is rational self-interest. Okay. Rational egoism. 
And from that, she derives a whole set of virtues and values. But a morality, again, focused on making your life the best life that it can be. Now, does that involve lying, stealing, and cheating? As the selflessness camp would like us to believe. Self-interest has to lead to lying, stealing, and cheating. Is lying a strategy for success in life? Well, how many of you people have ever lied? Don't. Uh, I'll assume most of you. Right? Does it work for you? Probably not. Lying sucks as a strategy for happiness. It's hard. People don't want to deal with you when they catch the lie. People don't trust you anymore. Right? And it's hard just on your own ability, cognitive ability. Because you're feeding your mind falsehoods. You know, there's a term in computers, garbage in, garbage out. If you stick lies into your brain, your brain's not going to function very well. And we just said that reason, your mind, is your most important value. Well, treat it with respect, which means only facts. Deal with facts. So lying is not a strategy for success. Lying is not a strategy for success in business. Think of Bernie Madoff, right? Everybody know who Bernie Madoff is? Pyramid scheme guy who's in jail now. He will tell you that he's happier in jail than he was before he was caught. Which is true. Just think about what he had to go through. He was lying to everybody, constantly, all the time. His family, his friends. I mean, think of the mental effort that that requires. I can barely remember. I'm at an age now where I can barely remember what happened last week. Now, if I lie about it, I have to remember two things. What actually happened and what I lied. But actually, it turns out I have to remember more than two things, because I have to remember who I lied to and who I didn't lie to, and why I lied to them. And it's just ridiculous. It's just such a stupid strategy. The strategy for success is honesty. It's facing reality. It's dealing with facts. And successful businessmen are people who do exactly that. Now, not to say that they're not bad guys. They're always bad apples. But fine, that's what you have a government for. To protect us from thieves and crooks and bad guys. And leave us alone otherwise. They can't even do that. It took them seven years to catch Bernie Madoff after people had already told them exactly what he's doing wrong. Right? Because they were too busy spying on me. Hear that, NSA? <laughs> right? Instead of spying on the bad guys, instead of looking for the bad guys, they're looking at all of us. Because that's how the regulatory state works. We're all potential bad guys. Because we're all in the marketplace. Because we're all self-interested. We're all after our own good. So, in my view, the battle for capitalism, you know, requires us to understand history and to know the history. It requires us to understand capitalism as an economic system, to understand the economics of it, and to be able to talk about the economic case for it. But much more important, much more fundamental, is to understand that it is a moral system. It is a system that allows each one of us to pursue their self-interest. And self-interest is good. A good in and of itself. Your life is an end in itself. And therefore, a system that allows us to pursue self-interest, allows us to pursue our values, allows us to fail and suffer the consequence of that failure and learn from it and rise up from it. 
The system that allows us to succeed and benefit from the rewards of success and do with those rewards as we see fit because it's ours, because it was our failure or our success. A system that leaves us alone to pursue our values. Somebody who's self-interested, committed to a morality of self-interest, not out, out just for, out of guilt, but committed to a morality of self-interest, doesn't want paternalistic mother government sitting on their shoulder telling them, don't drink that sugary drink. Right? My business, not yours. Right? Yeah, it's bad for me. But let me make those decisions about what's good and what's bad for me. The last thing a rationally confident moral person wants is to be coerced into acting against what he sees as his best interest. The last thing reason demands, or the, the thing that is anti-reason more than any other thing in the planet, is force, is coercion. Coercion is anti-reason. Reason is about looking out into the world and figuring stuff out, and you can make mistakes when you figure stuff out. Coercion means you have to do what somebody else tells you to do, whether you think it's right or not, whether your reason tells you it's good or not. So what you want to extract from society is coercion. That's the role of government. The role of government is to be the monopoly over the use of retaliatory force. It's there to protect us from those who would coerce us. And what it's become, of course, is the biggest coercer of all through the regulatory state, the entitlement state, it's become the greatest course. So to those of us who believe in capitalism, but more than that, those of us who want the standard of living that we have today, those of us who want the freedom to make choices, decisions about our own lives without other people coercing us into something different, for those of us who value freedom, liberty, what we need is a revolution. A revolution in the way we think about the, about the world. Fundamentally what we need is a moral revolution. What we need is to reject the morality of selflessness and embrace a morality of self-interest. Reject the idea that somehow living for others is noble and embrace the idea that the purpose of life is our own flourishing and our own success. Once we do that, the rest follows logically and easily. Thank you all. So a call for a revolution. I came to the LSE many years ago, many of my family thought it was a hotbed of lefties, revolutionaries, etc. So uh, do we have a different style of revolution on prospect? Right. I th uh, what we'll do is take three questions, we'll take a triptych and then uh, Yara and answer them. And can I suggest you introduce yourself? your name, your affiliation, and please ask a question. There's only one person who is giving the lecture this evening. Gentleman in the front row here first. And this gentleman. Hello, my name is David. Um, my question is about um, the Federal Reserve and also their policy of quantitative easing. What is the damage is it that it's doing and, what, and how should it be stopped safely and what should happen beyond, beyond this point? And the uh, second question, 
Uh, hi, hello. My name is Larry with King's College. Um, it's a very interesting lecture. My question is about limiting government. I think in um, 1970s or 80s, Hayek mentioned a limiting, uh, limiting constitution. The American experiment has failed to safeguard liberty from an expand, uh, expanding government. So, I mean, I understand all the issue about we should shrink the government, but is there any strategy to do that? It seems to me that uh, if we're looking at the um, current uh, Democratic Party, what they're doing is actually promising more social welfare. It's more like buying votes. And if they continue to do that, and um, it seems to me that in a few years, the Republican would, uh, Republicans wouldn't have any um, anything left. I mean, you wouldn't even have the majority in, in, the, in the Congress or the government to, to retake that. Um, I mean, is there any st strategy that you would um, uh, suggest that to, to make it happen? Thank you. Um, right. Hello. My name is uh, Timo Klein. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm a student at LSE in political economy. <clears throat> And um, what I found very striking is you keep on talking about capitalism being the cause of the rise in living, uh, which has also been shown in history a lot of times. Now, what I find missing in this discussion is the aspect of inequality. Uh, what is also cannot be missed is that those countries who have, let's take as an example, the United States have a, a significantly higher degree of inequality than many European countries. Now, do you see this as a necessity of economic growth? And if so, do you think that this is better to have this inequality and high economic growth than have more equality and a, what you could call, fairer society? Yeah. So let me, uh, let me start with the economics question. Uh, QE Federal Reserve, uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing today, in my view, is a disaster. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, the outcome of this is hard to tell. Where this is all heading is hard to tell. Uh, they are printing huge quantities of money, 85 billion uh, a month, but then they're sucking that money back in by uh, paying interest to the banks to hold reserve at the Federal Reserve. And that's why you're not seeing inflation. You're not seeing inflation because the money's actually not entering the U.S. economy. It's basically being neutralized by the Fed itself. I think to a large extent they're doing this to, to keep, just keep interest rates as low as they can. Now what lowering interest rates artificially like this does is it creates massive distortions in terms of the allocation of capital. What the Austrian economist calls malinvestment. That is, money is flowing into the wrong parts of the economy from a risk return trade-off basis. And that has to be corrected long term. So there's bad investments, you could call them bubbles, you can call them just bad investments being made constantly, because interest, I mean, I'm a finance guy, you do a discount of present value, when the interest rate is zero, it's a problem, because everything looks good at that point. Um, so all I can tell you is this, <laughs> this will end badly, right? It could either end in inflation, uh, I don't think that they'll let the inflation last, they'll suck the money back in, which will result in another recession. Uh, but it'll either end on the inflationary side with a, with a dip then into a recession because the banks will start lending money and the money will start circulating and result in, in higher prices. Or it'll end up in a massive credit contraction when all these investments are shown to be bogus investments and bad, bad investments and then money will contract even further than it's contracted so far and you'll get kind of a deflationary contraction. 
But nothing good can come of this. This is an experiment, a wacky, in my view, experiment in monetary policy. Never been tried before and has no chance, I don't think, of success. I just don't see the logic in it. Uh, uh, it's central planning on steroids. So, sorry, I can't give you... Uh, uh, the investment strategy to take advantage of this, but it's, uh, there's a lot of variables in terms of how, in what way bad things will happen. Constitutions. This is kind of the point of my lecture. There's no artificial mechanism that will bring about the result that you want. If you have a, the greatest constitution in the universe, right, airtight, and you have a people who don't believe in it anymore, it's finished. They'll change it, right? That's how they got the income tax. They voted it away. They voted the provision in the Constitution. They added an amendment in order to have the income tax. So you cannot protect yourself from the ideas that the people hold. The only way to bring about freedom, to bring about real liberty, is to change the ideas that people hold, to convince them that liberty is good, that freedom is valuable, and that this is the way to freedom. And to do that, one of the important ways to do that is to change the moral code that they hold. The moral code that they believe in today, my argument is, is incompatible with freedom, incompatible with liberty, incompatible with capitalism. So if you change the moral code, if we change the way people think about the world, then we can change the Constitution and make it better and stronger and tighter. You know, and that, that helps, right? A constitution helps, but the constitution can't be the solution all by itself. Constitution is good because it provides you with a framework for the rule of law. And look, the, the constitution in America was written over 200 years ago. It's done a pretty good job in spite of the philosophical changes over the last 200 years in keeping America, America relatively free. But it can't overcome the philosophical change that has happened in America, we don't believe in freedom anymore, we don't believe in liberty anymore, and therefore the Constitution doesn't matter anymore. The Supreme Court just rules what the people want it to rule, which is it rules away the Constitution. Inequality. In my view, if you have real freedom, that is, if you have no cronyism, if you have no redistribution of wealth in either direction, because cronyism means that you're redistributing wealth in the direction of the wealthy, then I don't care what the inequality is. It doesn't matter. Right? People are earning, are making what they deserve to be making. Uh, there is no, to me, using force, using coercion to take money from some people, to give it to others, to create a less unequal society is the most unfair system you could imagine. Force is unfair. Coercion is unfair. Stealing, which is what it is at the end of the day, taking from people who have money to give to people who don't, that's stealing, is unfair. It's immoral. It's unjust. I mean, the problem is we've let the left dominate these terms. No. Socialism is an unfair system. It's an unjust system. Indeed, it's an evil system. Taking from some people to give to others is evil. If they voluntarily want to give it, fine. But forcing them, using a gun, is stealing. So to me, what the market determines, in a true free market, is fair, just, right, good. And government has no role, zero role, in deciding on what the right inequality or quality should be. Because that means it's going to force people to do things they don't want to do. Um, so, in that sense, you know, 
whatever the outcome is the outcome. Now, I happen to believe, actually believe, that current government policy benefits the wealthy to some extent at the expense of the poor. Quantitative easing is a wonderful example of this. QE is a wonderful way to boost the profits of the banks, help wealthy people with stocks, stock market goes up with QE, and hurt savers, people who are trying to save money for retirement, or people trying to save, and, and, and poor people. It does nothing to help the creation of jobs. It does nothing to create innovation and entrepreneurship. It does everything to help in a sense, the static rich, the rich who have already got it, who are not trying to make more, and who are just invested in the markets. So what and cronyism generally, the, the general interaction between government and business, benefits, not the poor. I mean, for example, minimum wage. Here's an example. Minimum wage doesn't help the poor. It helps the unions. It helps the, the middle class. It helps unionized labor who have their salaries linked to the minimum wage. Their wages go up. But the poor suffer because half of them become unemployed. Yeah, some people get a boost in salary and other people lose their jobs. That doesn't help anybody. I would say most government policy in the U.S., which is what I, I know, is in a, creates inequality that's unjust because it's not market-driven. Um, in a truly free market, I don't know what the inequality would be. I don't think anybody should care what the inequality should be. I will tell you this, that if you are a, an, a poor person who's willing to work, your life is a thousand times better under capitalism than it is under any other system. So I would rather be, if I was poor, which I was not that long ago, um, if, if I came to the U.S. with nothing. If I were poor, I would much rather be in a pure free market capitalist environment than a socialist environment. Because I'd much rather work for my living than accept government handouts for a living. Okay, let's take, we have a question from the yellow jumper up there. Let's take two other questions from the balcony. The man in the back row with his hands way up. Way up. And then we'll take uh, the gentleman with the blue shirt, if I'm not mistaken, there. So, you, sir, thank you. Will Duffield, I'm at LSE. Is taxpayer-funded military intervention, a la Iraq, morally compatible with the free market? The effects of war are incredibly destructive to the property rights of individual Iraqis, and there doesn't seem to be much free market demand for attack helicopters. <laughs> the gentleman in the Hi, I'm Ramin. Could you give us some uh, historical examples of truly, truly free markets? Good question. And uh, the gentleman in the blue shirt. We could have a microphone. Thank you. Um, hi. Um, even accepting that economic self-interest has many benefits, the evidence, at least in Europe, is that unrestrained self-interest is very damaging. You mentioned bankers, well, talk about them. Germany collapsed, its economy collapsed, unemployment soared when American banks withdrew their loans at the beginning of 1930s. Anybody who has benefited from Fred Goodwin's use of bankers' bonuses in this country might wonder whether or not self-interest unrestrained is beneficial. Evidence. I note that the country with the highest social satisfaction in Europe is Denmark, which is also the country with the highest levels of social protection. And there are very few Jews and very few Catholics in Denmark. I would also, you said in your last answer, 
you're not really bothered about inequality. What then do you say about the, the evidence in books such as the Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Trickett, which, although it's a, um, a UK-based book, it does cover worldwide uh, data and, um, and correlation analysis that in, and more inequality damages social happiness. So, it, in other words, an entirely one-dimensional pursuit of one thing at, with, in an unrestrained way does seem to cause very serious adverse consequences. Okay. Um, <clears throat> if, uh, if the United States was attacked by Iraq, it is the United States' responsibility and obligation to defend itself. Uh, in, uh, just like a crook, uh, it is the obligation of the police to defend you from that police. It is the obligation of the government to protect the property rights of Americans, of Brits, or whatever it is. And then you have to make an analysis of, is this an act of self-defense or not an act of self-defense? If it's an act of self-defense, you need to do whatever is necessary, this is the role of government, in order to eliminate the threat, to eliminate the threat to your people. That is the only responsibility of government. Uh, in a free market. You know, again, we don't live in a free market, uh, and therefore these decisions are not made on the basis of what is good for the citizens, the individual citizens. Uh, it's made for a variety of different political uh, reasons. Foreign policy is a mess, it's a disaster to a large extent because of statist policies at every level in Europe and in the United States. Um, can I give a, examples of true free markets in history? I admitted that I can't. There aren't any. So what? Could you give, before 1776, could you give an example of any, any kind of free societies in the world? No, you couldn't. There has to be a revolution, a revolution in people's thinking. And in the case of 1776, the revolution was the Enlightenment that brought about the establishment of the US and later on, uh, you know, freedom in the rest of, in the, rest of the West. But there has to be an intellectual revolution that leads to a new form of government, to a new form. But as I said in my talk, there are lots of countries that have approached free markets, whether it's the United States in the 19th century, which I gave as an example, or Hong Kong. They've approached it. And to the extent that countries approach it, they have been successful. They've been successful from an economic perspective. Now, the last question about economic self-interest. First of all, my conception of self-interest is not economic self-interest. It's self-interest. People do stuff all the time, which is completely compatible with their self-interest, but not in terms of their wealth. I'll give myself as an example. I've got a PhD in finance. I could have quite easily gone to Wall Street and made a lot of money. As it is, I have a hedge fund. I could work at the hedge fund full time and make a lot more money than I make today. But I like this more. I have more fun doing this. I enjoy it. My happiness is tied to engaging with people, trying to teach, trying to communicate, trying to change the world, if you will. My happiness is tied to that. I'm for self-interest as a human being. Your happiness and your happiness, the economic side, is a portion. I don't do this for free. I make a good living. But I'm not maximizing my wealth. I'm maximizing my happiness. That's the goal of self-interest. Um, you mentioned a number of, uh, of, of, of social happiness studies. First of all, I don't know what social happiness is. As far as I'm concerned, only individuals can be happy. Um, 
But generally, happiness studies, I believe, are, are fairly dubious. We have a hard time defining happiness. Yes, there's certain hormones that get projected when you feel high. But I could stimulate that by giving you cocaine. That doesn't mean you're happy. It means the hormones are going off. The, the chemicals are there that produce a sense of happiness. But in the Aristotelian sense, happiness is not a momentary feeling. Happiness is a lifelong state of mind. And that lifelong state of mind, with all due respect, we don't know how to measure with a, a, a monitor of chemicals yet. And there are a lot of things that go into it. Now, there are a lot of these cross-country uh, questions. And, you know, it's very hard to control for culture and for religion. And by the way, I didn't blame this notion of selflessness only on Jews and Catholics. Uh, secular philosophies have, have done more uh, harm, I think, to human uh, morality than, than religion has. Uh, you know, the, 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 the secular philosophers, philosophies that you study are far more into the selflessness than even religion is. And, and Denmark, of course, benefits from that. But, but I find it interesting if people use Scandinavia as an example. Because what is the difference between Scandinavia and the United States today? How big of a difference is there? Well, it's pretty small. If you look at GDP, the role of government in the economy and the percent of GDP, Denmark, for example, scores higher than the United States in economic freedom. Significantly higher. The United States today is number 18 in the world. 18. Denmark, I think, is in the top 10. Sweden, the heaven of socialism, right? Sweden's socialism went bankrupt in the early 1990s. And since the 1990s, Swedish government has been shrinking. It's been shrinking its regulation, it's been shrinking the welfare state, and indeed its economy is doing pretty well. Because it's been shrinking, tax rates have come down in Sweden quite a bit during the last 20 years. And as a consequence, they're doing better. They're not doing great, but they're doing better than the rest of the world, which is doing the opposite of, of, of those things. The difference today between the US and, and uh, Europe in terms of the role of government is minuscule. The U.S. spends about, if you take into account all levels of government, which in the U.S. is important, the U.S. spends about 40, government spends about 42% of GDP. In Europe, it's 45, 46, right? We're talking about 3, 4% of GDP difference. They're all statist. They have different combinations of how they distribute the wealth and what they do and so on. But it's all statism. And it's all much, much less, whether you're measuring happiness or whether you're measuring wealth or any of these things, much, much less than what is humanly possible, what our potential as human beings is. And now, I'm sorry that I don't have a parallel universe here where I can point to the laissez-faire capitalist country in which capitalism is being instituted in full and where people are unbelievably happy. They walk in clouds every day. It's as if they've been snorting cocaine all the time. <laughs> I don't have it. I'm trying to make an argument that human happiness depends on using reason, reason depends on freedom, freedom depends on shrinking government coercion in the state. That's what human happiness depends on. If we want to be really happy, then we need to be free. To be really free, we need a state that's significantly smaller and significantly less intrusive than it is today. Right, let's take some more questions. The man in the corner. No, 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 behind you. And we'll have a second question from the man with the uh, Father Christmas beard <laughs> in the middle. And we'll have a third question at the back there. 
Yeah, I would like to come back to, uh, sorry, my name is Robert, I'm a Franciscan brother. Um, uh, I would like to come back to something that has been mentioned, but I mean, somehow you didn't really elaborate on that. It's a financial crisis, because I mean, that seems to me um, the natural objection to uh, the paradigm you're presenting to us. I mean, the, the financial markets were deregulated since the 1980s. Uh, there was a huge shadow banking sector which didn't have any regulation at all, and yet it did all crash down. And if it hadn't been for uh, state intervention, it would have been much worse. So, I mean, what do you make of that? So, uh, okay. Oh, sorry. Take three. three. Uh, thank you. Three. Um, my name is um, Kenneth Ainsworth. And, uh, well, as you've been saying for the last hour, and uh, as Anne Rand herself, she regarded uh, private property and freedom as sacrosanct. And yet, she was not prepared when it came to the uh, what you'd call First Nation peoples, Australian Aborigines, Indians, etc. As far as she was concerned, uh, the Americans and Australians and all the rest of them had the right, just like Lenin had the right to uh, take the uh, property from the uh, Kulaks in, in, in the Soviet Union where she was from, she, as far as she was concerned, uh, these people have the right to take the, the property from the Indians and Aborigines because as far as she was concerned, they weren't putting it to what she considered to be good use. So in a sense, she, uh, well, she contradicts her own philosophy. Okay, thank you very much. Hi, my name is Blake, and I would like to ask you how you might respond to the a somewhat ludicrous situation that Amartya Sen uses to describe why uh, perhaps people aren't entirely rationally self-interested where you have the visitor uh, to a foreign country ask the native which way it is to the rail station. The native says, rather than pointing in the correct direction, points the opposite way because that's towards the post office. And he has a letter that says, do you mind mailing my letter for me on the way to the, po to the rail station, which is not on the way to the rail station. And then the visitor says, of course I will, and then as soon as the native leaves, opens up the envelope to see if there's any money inside, and then proceeds off not towards the rail station. Uh, so it's just a situation in which um, obviously someone would try to help someone else out just because it's, not because it's moral, but this is what humans do. <coughs> so is there a, um, perhaps a reconciliation between uh, believing that uh, freedom and liberty are very moral but also not being 100% self-interested all the time. I think I understand that, but we'll see. <laughs> so let me start with the financial crisis. Now, this is difficult to do in a Q&A. I've done a six-hour course on my view of what caused the financial crisis. But let me try to make this short. There was no free market in 2007. The banking system in the United States is, in spite of deregulation that happened in fits and starts since really the 1970s, the banking system in the United States was the most regulated industry in America. Every bank in the United States was regulated by five different entities. I can name them if you really want. Today, there's seven of them. Five different entities. Uh, every aspect of a bank's behavior was regulated and controlled. These regulations and controls created massive perverse incentives. Why does the shadow banking industry even exist? Well, first of all, shadow is, is, a, is a horrible name because part of that <coughs> is hedge funds. 
Hedge funds will find you in the financial crisis. As far as I know, if you went bankrupt, no big damages. Hedge funds mostly did fine. The real shadow banking problem was Citibank's off-balance sheet stuff. Why did Citibank have all that stuff? Because it was incentivized to do so by the perverse nature of the regulatory regime it was under. Why was the financial crisis happened? The financial crisis happened, in my view, for three reasons. One, the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates in 2002 in order, because of 9-11 and the dot-com bubble, uh, below the rate of inflation for two and a half years. We had a negative real rate of return. When you have negative real rates, you're basically paying people to borrow money. Guess what people did? They borrowed money in mass. By the way, in 2002, Paul Krugman wrote an editorial in the, Wall in the New York Times. You can look this up. In the last sentence of the editorial, he wrote, uh, what Alan Greenspan should do now that the dot-com bubble has burst is to create a housing bubble. Paul Krugman, 2002, look it up. And he did. It's exactly what Alan Greenspan did. Second, why did all the money go into housing in the United States? It all went into housing because in the United States, we subsidize housing dramatically. You get an interest rate, you get deduction on your taxes for the, mortgage, for the interest you pay on your mortgage. No other interest gets a deduction. If you rent, you don't get a deduction. If you own outright, you don't get a deduction. Uh, Freddie and Fannie, I won't go even into that. You all know the story of Freddie and Fannie. By the time of the crisis, they owned 50% of all the junk mortgages in the United States. They would buy anything, this notion that, that all these banks committed fraud vis-a-vis -vis Freddie and Fannie and sold them awful mortgages is the most absurd thing ever. Freddie and Fannie knew exactly what kind of junk they were buying. They bought it because it was part of their mandate to subsidize housing. And of course, they went bust. And today, by the way, Freddie and Fannie buy 95% of all the mortgages in the United States are bought by Freddie and Fannie. We continue to subsidize these mortgages. So reason number two is housing policy. We have central planning when it comes to home ownership. Central planning fails. This is another example of it. All this money went into this opportunity, low interest rates, being subsidized so they even lower. My, you know, I have a million dollar mortgage at 3.875 for 30 years, after taxes, I'm paying 2.5%. I mean, I'd be ludicrous not to max, max out my mortgage. I mean, they're basically paying me to take out debt. It's, it's the nuttiest thing imaginable. Third, regulation, the regulatory regime, too big to fail, tells banks, take on as much risk as you want, don't worry, be happy, you can benefit when, when you make the money, and when you lose, we'll bail you out, right? Uh, the rating agencies, there are only three allowed in the United States because the SEC will only allow three. They, everybody has to use the rating agencies, pension plans and insurance companies because of a law called ERISA, which requires pension plans and insurance companies to only buy rated securities, rated by who? By the three the SEC allows. So in spite of the fact that these institutions have been wrong about almost everything for 20 years, they continue to thrive because the government allows them to continue to thrive and the market isn't allowed to work on them. Every aspect of the financial world is controlled. There is no freedom. There is no market. There is no market that gets rid of the failures. There is no creative destruction going on, right, where, where the bad gets flushed out and the good rises up. All of this is controlled. If you want to start a bank in the United States, first of all, you get deposit insurance. Anybody can start a bank and people will deposit. Second, your business plan, your CEO, your chief financial officer, your board of directors, and your investors all have to be approved by regulators. Freedom? 
There's no free markets in financial markets. This is a government-caused crisis from beginning to end, and the deeper you investigate what happened, the deeper you found the roots. The Wall Street Journal ran an editorial the other day where they basically said, if you want to put in jail the people who caused this crisis, they're called Christopher Dodd and Barney Frank and the congressman who voted for all this crap to begin with. They're the ones who should go to jail, not the bankers. So that's my very short version of financial crisis. We can talk about derivatives. We can talk about, I mean, finance is my field. We could do this all night. Property uh, rights. Property rights as they relate to American indigenous people. Ayn Rand's point was this, two points she made. One, they had no, they had no concept of property rights, and indeed, to the extent that they had property, they were farmers, they had, the United States should have recognized their property rights, should have, and when they tried to, the Indians refused to accept it. And there were many, there were some attempts, too few in my view, too few during the 19th century to try to bring the rule of law and property rights to the American Indians, but they didn't want it. They wanted to roam everywhere. Uh, uh, roaming tribes don't have property right over every step that they, they're not Abraham, where God told him, every step that you take, that belongs to you. That's ridiculous, that's not property. You have to fence it off, you have to do something with it. To the extent that American Indians fenced off, did something with their property, it should have been protected. Whether it wasn't, but it should have been protected. And a big obstacle to that protection were the Indians itself. The second thing that Ayn Rand said, which was not a normative statement, but a positive statement in terms of what happened, is when historically you get a clash between civilization and uncivilized people, the fact is, the reality is, not a moral statement about this, that the civilization overtakes them. And that's, that's what happened. Um, unless they're willing to adopt civilization, which they won't. Uh, what, you know, I don't really, I guess I don't really understand, but, but this is the problem. You can create convoluted games, you know, that, that, that show your agenda any way you want. You can create all kinds of scenarios. If you truly understand what rationality means, if you, if you understand the full concept, and not rationality in the sense that economists use it, of perfect knowledge and perfect information and never make a mistake and never flaw, but if you understand it as, you know, the pursuit of truth in a sense, the, the, the understanding of facts of reality, the, the integration of those facts, the, the use of logic in integrating and understanding reality, then lying, cheating, is not rational. It's not in your self-interest, and it's not rational. Rationality is about facts. It's about logic. It's about truth. And it, people, you know, people create all kinds of weird scenarios in terms, in, in, in attempts to show that it's not, but just the fact that it's so weird, the scenario that they present, suggests that it's, it's ridiculous. So, you know, I'd have to look at what Sen actually wrote to analyze exactly what he did, but the point is that I believe that rationality, by its very nature, demands honesty. If you're not honest, you're not being rational, because you're not dealing with reality, you're not dealing with facts. Right, ladies and gentlemen, I think we are approaching 8 o'clock. There is an opportunity to uh, purchase the paperback edition of your book, which came out a year ago. And if you would like to have it signed, uh, Yerem will be... I think you're going to stay here to sign them. Uh, whatever. I'm what? staying here. I'm staying here to stay sign them. Stay here to sign them. Uh, so...
I'd just like to say thank you so much. I hope everyone has enjoyed this spirited presentation on the morality of laissez-faire capitalism. I judge that some people uh, enjoyed every minute and agreed with every point he put across, and other people took a 180% different uh, degree view. But it's been controversial, provocative, and highly enjoyable here, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you all.